Hi, this is Alina and Megan, and you're listening to Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast, where we dive into all things health, wellness, and fitness. We are two certified athletic trainers, personal trainers, and nutrition coaches who met and graduated together from the University of Arkansas. And we want to do this podcast to spread our joy about treating our bodies well through nutrition, exercise, and knowledge. Today on the podcast, we have Michael Mullen. Michael is an NATA certified athletic trainer with 25 plus years experience in training and rehabilitation. He owns Integrative Rehab Training, which is where he primarily sees his clients. He is also on the adjunct faculty of the University of New England and is a certified clinical instructor through the Postural Restoration Institute. Michael has a successful online presence on Instagram where he posts educational content that is beneficial for athletic trainers, physical therapists, and strength and conditioning coaches as he blends all of those professions together. We are thrilled to have another ATC joining us for this podcast episode. Welcome, Michael. Today on Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast, we have Michael Mullen, and we are very excited to have you on today. We're just going to go a little bit into a little about you, and then we'll go from there. Great. Excited to be here. Thank you both for having me. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself, and yeah, we just want to learn about you a little bit. Yeah, sure. So as a fellow certified athletic trainer, thank you both very much. I went to Plymouth State College in New Hampshire and kind of got interested in athletic training. I mean, I kind of mentioned in the past, my mom cut an article out of a newspaper clipping before I went to college and said, hey, this sounds kind of cool. You want to do that? So I looked into it when I got to college and liked it. I liked being using my hands. I like working with the athletes. I like being in that environment, that kind of like crazed environment that athletic trainers know about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so my first job was working at a clinical setting. So it was part uh, doing kind of a physical therapy aid assistant type work, and then kind of walking people through the fitness part of their PT. And then I also ran a walk-in clinic for four local high schools. So it was like an injury clinic. So between three and six on weekdays, after to come in free of charge and be assessed. And then I would figure out a plan, you know, do these things at home, follow up in two days with me. I think you need to see a doctor. You know, you probably need some physical therapy. You know, I try to help to direct their care from there. And it was in the city of Manchester, New Hampshire. So it was a very good service for them. They didn't have athletic trainers at the school. And, and the person that I worked for felt very strong about giving back to the community. And that was great. I did that for about five years and, and really enjoyed it and learned a lot. And took a lot of continuing ed. And then I took a position in San Francisco running the rehab department for an orthopedic surgeon's practice. So we were out there for about five, five and a half years in the late 90s to 2000. And it was a phenomenal experience. He was doing cutting edge work, meniscal transplants, and you know, developed surgical instrumentation for techniques that nobody was doing. And so I had to create a lot of protocols and protocol development and ran and helped to coordinate dryland training camps for the U.S. ski team and the World Pro Ski Tour. Worked with a bunch of ballet and, and performing arts companies. I did work with like Marin Ballet and a bunch of San Francisco ballet people. We worked with windsurfing, covered the National Windsurfing Championships as an athletic trainer. I mean, things like that that were just really diverse and learned a lot and did a lot and loved it. And then uh, my wife and I realized it's just hard living out there. It's pretty expensive. So we moved to Maine. So I've been here about 20 years. I worked at an outpatient PT practice for about 15 years. Uh, and again, started kind of developing and reformulating my whole thought process during that time. And then about five years ago, I went out on my own and opened my own business uh, called Integrative Rehab Training. And I just see people one-on-one for a host of things. I see anything from they want to manage a back issue or a hip issue or a chronic neck problem and want to get back to being active to people who are really complicated and complex and have 
kind of run the gamut of the medical system and rehab practitioners. And I just, I, I go looking at the body a little bit differently than the standard care. So, and I've been fortunate to be in the area long enough that I've established a lot of really great relationships with colleagues and professionals. So I've got a good referral base as well as a good base to refer to. So, and I just feel very fortunate to be as an athletic trainer, able to offer the services that I am as, as you and I have spoken about Alina. You know, it's just, it's really phenomenal to be able to utilize the, the diverse skill set that I've learned over the years and the experiences that I've had and be able to kind of really approach things with these people how I want versus how the facilities that I've worked at before or insurance companies dictate or, you know, whatever suggests you have to do things. So it's been very, very freeing. Well, I have a question. I had no idea that your background with sports you worked with was so diverse and like, I don't want to say random, but just like kind of obscure sports that you wouldn't typically expect a certified athletic trainer to work with. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you think we can learn from watching all those sports? Or like, what have you kind of gathered as like for humans and the human body as a whole by watching and working with so many different diverse sports? Yeah, that's a great question. So early on when I was doing my work at the, my first job setting, I was covering traditional sports. So I provided coverage for two of those high schools that I talked about for football. So I cover their home games and, and, and arrange physician coverage. So I, you know, I did the, the standard care, if you would. When I moved to San Francisco, the surgeon that I worked for was just, it was called the Stone Clinic. The surgeon I worked for just had a lot of diverse interests himself. And he was a big windsurfer. So he was very connected with the windsurfing community. He was a big skier, one of the U.S. ski team physicians. So he was very involved with that. He had a strong interest in the arts, which is where he had the connection with the performing artists. I learned a lot from all these different things from a biomechanics perspective. So I am often talking to people who are uh, tennis pros or, or golf instructors or other professionals that are gifted at doing what they do with their athletes, but I'll consult with them saying, I am not teaching these people to play golf or tennis or how to, you know, running coach or how to run, but I'll talk about things from a biomechanical perspective that I need to have them change because here's what I see them doing that I think is causing problems as to why they're here to see me. And so when you have that respect for the other professionals, but you also have the biomechanics background that you have by looking at the diverse element of things, I find it incredibly valuable. My joke with my wife sometimes, I'm like, I can't, sometimes I just can't get my brain to shut off. It's like, I'm always watching people and looking at things and observing and saying, I wonder how their ankle feels. Wow. I wonder how bad that shoulder bothers them or whatever. I'm just intrigued with the human structure and human movement. And so I feel like at times that always being switched on elements, although a curse at times is, is incredibly valuable for me to be able to create different ways of analyzing and then approaching what I do with my clients. Cool. So next question, I was just looking at your Instagram. I mean, your Instagram has a ton of really great, just kind of out of the box things for athletic trainers or other clinicians to think about, or even just anyone that's interested in the human body. Your most recent post was regarding email apnea. And what's (laughs) hilarious is I have started noticing like, like obviously we don't really think about breathing throughout the day, even though we obviously do it a lot during the day. But I've Mm -hmm. noticed, I feel as if I'm holding my breath when I'm thinking about things or staring at a screen, which is really crazy. And I just looked at that post. I hadn't even seen it yet. I was just looking on your page to think of things to ask you about. So can you go into a little more detail about what is email apnea? Sure. Um, well, interestingly, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book Breath by James Nestor. Yep. I just yeah. read it. Uh, oh, good. So that's why, that, that's why I read that word was email apnea was in that book. And I'm like, huh. And that explained a lot to me when I have so many of my clients, because sorry, quick, quick backpedal, Megan. For, the, for listeners, I do a lot of breath work with people that I see. So 
I'm of the mindset that pretty much everybody has some degree of malrespiratory ventilatory mechanics. Which is front not to back. typical for normal ATCs to do that. No. And we can definitely talk about that too, because your treatment yep. is not so typical. So, okay, right. anyway, continue. No I, no, I appreciate that, Alina. So this imbalance that people have that they don't even, they just, they adapt to it. They don't even know there's anything really problematic, but the influence it has not only on just the chemical and metabolic influence that it has on brain health, 50% of the air we take in is used by the brain, you know, things like that, that people don't even think about. But if you've got poor exchange and poor balance of those chemicals, then it's going to affect muscles, it'll affect brain, it'll affect movement, it'll change the shape of your body if you've got poor expansive or increased expansive elements and anywhere else. So I have a lot of clients when I'm talking to people would say things like you just said, Megan, which are, uh, you know, I feel like I catch myself holding my breath during the daytime. And I'm like, I know. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? And that's why we're working on this to have it become, you know, the, the voluntary volitional element of change that I want to introduce to you will, I feel strongly, allow the involuntary elements to be better overall so that you don't have those episodes as much. But I read about email apnea when I was reading the book Breath, so I decided to look it up a little bit because I was intrigued. That's what I do. I read something and then I kind of go look into it a little bit more. One, is it validated? Two, is the research to support it? Whatever. As I said, it never shuts off. So I found out that it was actually by this woman had written it and she was a person who worked at Apple for a number of years. So she was in the tech industry for a long, long time. And so she came, coined the phrase just like she coined the continuous partial attention because she just observed the way that people were doing things and said, you know, I was looking at people and I like, they're like looking at their phones and they're not breathing or they're on their computer and they're not breathing. So she called up with this thing called email apnea, which is a temporary absence or suspension of breathing or shallow breathing while doing email. Her name was Linda Stone, and she has this article called Just Breathe, Building the Case for Email Apnea. Mm -hmm. So you know, she noticed it and then investigated further about the influence that, hey, if you're stopping breathing and it's apnea, it's kind of like when you have apnea at nighttime. It's super bad for your health and will influence how your body overall functions over the course of time. And so then it becomes habitual and it becomes patterned and then becomes a bigger deal. To that point where I get a little bit discouraged with is in particular after reading that book as you know is you know why doesn't the medical community and why doesn't the therapy community why doesn't the rehab community look to research this more and to understand it more and to be able to apply it to the, to the patients and clients that they see the influence it has on health is significant and i've had i feel very fortunate to have learned so many different elements about the breathing mechanics and the influence it has on the body and it has been genuinely life-changing for a lot of the clients that i see because they had no idea. And when you're able to then apply it to their chronic issues that they have somewhere, and they realize like, oh my gosh, I love doing that breathing activities. I just feel so much better. Like I'm, I move better, my head's clear, I feel the ground more. I mean, the, the thing that they describe and the adjectives they come up with is profound. So pretty much every single client I see, a new client, gets some breathing instruction based upon what their individual needs are. And then I apply that in varying ways, depending upon what I'm seeing them for. Am I just seeing them two or three times to manage an injury or am I seeing them regularly and going through the training process with them where then I'm going to apply it with deadlifting and push pulls and, you know, whatever other activity I'm going to do. And I'm trying to manipulate the breath early on to have them understand how to utilize it to their benefit mechanistically internally, but also how to manage the pressures and the, the imbalance of volumes inside in different parts of the body as we're training. And then depending upon what level of the training session we're in, are we doing kind of easier stuff as warm up, or are we starting to get to kind of being like third, fourth set of more like, you know, heavier stuff, 
dictates how I'll then manipulate it. Get to the heavier stuff, I'm not worried about it as much. Kind of do what you need to do because we've established a good baseline earlier on during the session or over the course of previous sessions to get you to be able to not have to think about it quite so significantly when you get to these challenging tasks at hand. Mm -hmm. It's a long answer. That answer, yeah. Did that cover it though? It does. And it actually just prompted my, just my thoughts on myself because I tend, so I've always been an early riser. I think it's, I grew up like in the country. We had animals to feed in the morning. I'd catch the bus at like 7am. So I just grew up kind of getting up and going early. And so I feel most energetic in the morning. And that's also when I train. Yeah, you too. And I am starting to wonder, I am also a very, I'm kind of a type A person. I tend to be like have a thousand tabs open both in my brain and also like on my whatever screen I'm staring at, which is usually either my computer or my phone, especially right now at work. Like I, I don't like just like sitting and doing nothing. So I'm constantly like researching things or working on client things, things like that. But I've noticed again with the email apnea, I know I don't have sleep apnea and I definitely do not mouth breathe at night. I guess that's an assumption, but I think it's because I always feel really energetic in the morning. So I assume that I'm sleeping really well, but I'm starting to wonder if the reason that I don't, that I tend to get more stressed out or like have digestive problems or things like that during the day is because I do end up like holding my breath or keeping myself in sort of that pair or that sympathetic fight or flight situation because I'm constantly like thinking about a thousand things during the day. Whereas at night I think about sleeping and that's it. And I'm just calm. Yeah. That just made me really think about myself. And I, I'm trying to think of a way that I could implement, like my watch actually reminds me like breathe every yep. hour or whatever. So I should just start doing that. Or I don't know if you have any recommendations for people to sort of no. have this conscious breath practice and that not eventually can become unconscious. Do you have any recommendations? No, that's, you said a great one. I tell people all the time, I'm like, do you have a desk job or you got, you walk around with a phone in your pocket during your daytime, utilize whatever trigger you possibly can. If it's a buzz on your watch, like you have, which is great. Anytime you get a text come in, take a couple of easy breaths while, deliberately take a couple of easy breaths while you're reading it. If you see something pop up on your computer, use that as a reminder, just kind of check yourself. You know, it takes, practice. It takes time. It takes behavior change, which is the big thing. It's behavior change. Mm -hmm. We get into routines. We get into ways of doing things that feel very comfortable for us. And many of us like routine, but that routine comes with it. Behavioral, internal, physical elements that change with that as well too. So what I tell people is, is even if you just remind yourself three times a day to do what I call a five breath reset, which is just you know, I want to have you just take an easy breath in through your nose. I want to have you exhale. Some people it's out of the nose. Some people it's out of the mouth. Too long to describe who's who, but either way, longer, slower, fuller exhalation than you normally would. Work on end exhalation, pause. Gradually, slowly re-inhale through your nose. Exhale a little further than you did the previous time. Pause a little longer than you did the previous time. Inhale slowly each time and do that for about five breaths. And that kind of reestablishes a, a pretty consistent good baseline for people in terms of diaphragmatic movement, in terms of expansion, in terms of a decreasing tone and regulating metabolism, things like that that occur. So I'd say, you know, three times a day, set an appointment on your watch or your phone if you can, you know, whatever you can do too. And to me, that helps get them to a better baseline. And then I tell them, and by the way, ideally, we're supposed to breathe in and out through our nose all day long. And it's about 5.5 seconds in and about 5.5 seconds out. That's ideal. Or I tell them six seconds. When you do this five breath reset, in my mind, it brings you down to a good baseline that the consistent in and consistent out helps to then kind of maintain as good as possible during the daytime. 
I love that. I love how you're integrating breathing so deeply with yourself, your clients. And also there's so much info in that book, Breath, that talks about this. We both read it and it, it's such a great book. And we'll link it in the show notes as well. But I definitely want you to talk a little bit about being an ATC and utilizing this information because I know I reached out to you personally because I just wanted to know how you've set up your business and what I could learn from you because what you're doing I think is very innovative towards ATCs that might have ideas of just a different route to take with their profession. And maybe talk a little bit about what is an ATC and just how you set up your business. That yeah. makes sense. Uh, no, it totally makes sense. And I know that you both sympathize with the wanting to feel like we want to differentiate ourselves from personal training, not as better or worse, but just so that people understand the difference in terms of like background and training and, and what our educational elements are, because I think that it is important. I'll have a lot of times my clients be like, yeah, I'm talking to people. I'm like, I don't even know what to call you. Like, what do right. I call you? <laughs> yeah. What and, do you tell people when you have to describe what you do? Because that's something I struggle with. Because I'm like, uh, I kind of do both things. And yep. it's hard to totally explain that. But yeah. And no, you're good. I, what I say is I said, you just whatever you feel comfortable that you feel like describes me the best. In all honesty, I said, I'm a certified athletic trainer. And that means I just have a strong sports medicine background. And so I understand injuries. I understand rehabilitation. I understand preventative mechanisms to kind of put into place to help prevent them reduce the propensity of them to occur. But as an athletic trainer, having had the on the field experience that I did, but having always liked the rehabilitation side of it most was why I went the direction that I did. So learning what I learned when I was in San Francisco because of how prestigious the practice was and the people that we saw. I mean, I saw like, like movie stars, you know, and professional athletes and all that stuff. It was a really phenomenal experience, but very challenging. I had to be on my game all the time because yeah. there's a high demand with these people. So I was forced to learn a lot, which helped me think about things from a, a more comprehensive element. When I started working at the PT clinic, when I moved to Maine, and I started taking courses through the Posture Restoration Institute, that helped to really fill in a lot of blanks of things that my orthopedic experience and background didn't have answers to. And so as an athletic trainer, that allowed me the opportunity to then be able to look at the body differently and more comprehensively because it's really looking at things from the inside out because everything else has always been about what's going on you know, with muscles and joints and tissue versus what's happening internally that actually has an influence on why the muscles, joints, and tissues are doing what they're doing many times. And so as an athletic trainer, I played collegiate lacrosse and my son was a collegiate lacrosse player. And so I, I would be on field a lot at different points doing stuff with my teammates or doing stuff with his teammates. Or, you know, going to an event or a tournament and then kind of happen, being asked to go out on the field and take a look at stuff. And what I realized from a, an athletic training perspective is that there's things that you can put into place from what we've learned, the stuff that we've talked about, Alina, that is very applicable to an acute injury that you can apply right away. And many times I've found there's manual techniques and different hands-on things you can do with an acute injury that has a profound influence on why that thing doesn't last as long, why that sprained ankle doesn't have the amount of swelling it did afterwards because you knew how to you know, reposition the distal fibula or, you know what I mean, things like that, or, or a subluxed shoulder, how to you know, hold a position and get the tissue to relax immediately so it doesn't become spastic and lock it into place. And those are elements of what I do with the clients that I see as well, too. So I do, I'm a very hands-on person. So I'll joke with people and say kind of like, okay, you know, I kind of got my personal training cap on today. It's mostly training day. You, you look good on the table. Versus other days where it's more a table-based session because they flared something up over the weekend or whatever. 
and then we've got to do some things to kind of restore a better baseline for them. And so as an athletic, as an athletic trainer working, let's just say in a collegiate or high school setting, when you do have that time to be able to spend with somebody, you know, there's some things that you can do on the table that's incredibly profound. And you know the influence that it has and the outcome is much, much better than it would have been, even if they don't appreciate it. You know what I mean? Like they may not have known how bad it could have been had you not done some of those things. Right. But your understanding of it only has better value to you going forward with the other people that you end up seeing. And the people that I see, because so many of them have been to so many other practitioners, they know it because they feel it right away. Like, oh my gosh, that feels totally different than what I'm used to or whatever. If it's a manual technique or a self, self thing that they did to themselves that you can put into place as an athletic trainer. Quick side note, my son is an ATC. He graduated a year and a half ago from college, University of New England, and he worked at the University of New England and had a, a really good year of telling me stories about stuff that he was able to put into place with, with the teams that he worked with, with some of the athletes, because it wasn't just the traditional straightforward modality-driven, mm-hmm. you know, athletic training approach of, you know, slap an ultra, uh, slap an e-stim on or just booting them. You know, he's able to kind of do some stuff that was really helpful for them in the training and on the field. So. Again, long answer, but I hope that helped to cover that. You know, definitely. I think it's good to clarify just what ATCs do because I think people always think about personal training, athletic training, and mesh it together, which in a lot of times it needs to be meshed together. They go hand in hand, but the education is definitely different. And Megan and I went to University of Arkansas and had a great experience there, but it's definitely different than just taking an online certification and just getting your, like, random personal training certification. Not saying there's anything wrong with no. being a personal trainer. There's no, 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 no. fantastic, amazing personal trainers out there that I would go to for an injury before seeing a lot of other providers. But Agreed. I think it's all about that continuing education as well. Yeah. And even though, you know, it's obviously entry levels masters now for athletic training. So that's, yeah. you know, even more validation for our field, which is fabulous. Mm-hmm. But even though the overall educational model for that, as well as other rehabilitation-based professions, is a little limited, I hate to say flawed. I mean, it is what it is. It's just not comprehensive enough based upon some of the things we've already discussed and talked about. But when you get these forward-thinking people who run programs and are at least able to expose their students to different things, then I feel that that's where it's going to be most successful. So I'm on adjunct clinical adjunct faculty at the University of New England, and and I would go down twice a year to the athletic training to the junior athletic training class and and lecture. I do a two part lecture. One would be kind of a a lecture, and the other one would be a lab, teaching them the stuff we just talked about, assessing the body differently than they'll they learn based upon what they're teaching and what their curriculum talked about, but showing them how to look at rib cages and showing them how to look at pelvises and hips and you know what type of uh, uh, interventions you can put in and you know how blowing up a balloon can be incredibly profoundly powerful and helping to reestablish a breathing baseline and things like that. And so is it part of things that they're tested on? No, but now they've been exposed to it. And so those that are interested in learning more about it when they get into the field are like, oh, I want to take some coursework on whatever, because I really feel like that's going to help me to be better at what it is that I'm going to do. Yeah. It's good to get the wheels turning. Yeah, say, there you go. Uh, yes, that's, I mean, that's what honestly all of, I mean, it's all about continuing education too, because like you said, our textbooks that we have in school, they have to be like gone through the ringer as far as like, you know, randomized controlled trials and just like things being quote unquote proven by research versus like, you know, all the amazing experience that maybe doesn't have all the statistical background as far as like, 
you know, number of people that they tested and things like that. But people who have the most experience in the field, like you, for example, you teaching us is really what can kind of get those young minds that don't have as much experience in the field to sort of just think outside the box and actually progress the profession and progress the way of thinking. Because I mean, once upon a time, we thought the world was flat and it's not. So once upon a time, we thought it probably didn't matter how we breathe or that it can affect like how our entire system functions. But I think it's finally starting to catch on. And I know we were talking a little bit earlier, like I'm going to get really frustrated in school. Just like, I'm sure that there'll be many holes, but I mean, you can't blame the education system either because there's infinite things that we could talk about, you know, and it's hard to really like standardize it for, you know, boards when it hasn't been, yeah, when it hasn't really been proven through research. Cause like, how are you, I mean, people can all think of things differently. Absolutely. The issue that I get a little bit, I don't want to say frustrated because it used to frustrate me, but I don't, I don't let it get to me anymore. But the thing that I find disappointing, I guess is the word that I want to use is to this day, I'll get practitioners I'll have clients of mine come back and it's like, oh, I went to PT at so-and-so, or I went to go see this doctor so-and-so. And I mentioned kind of the stuff you're doing and they're like, oh, I don't believe in that stuff. Or they'd poo-poo it. And I mean, to me, that's just, I mean, that's irresponsible. It's unprofessional. And it's really unfortunate because do you really think that I would put something into place that I didn't feel was going to be beneficial and helpful? And all it did to these people, these clients of mine, was turn them away from the other practitioner. So, and I got... I can't even tell you how many arrows I've taken in my back over the years for yeah. some of the stuff that I did in the practice that I was at before and uh, respected the practice a lot, but it was, it was not always met with support with my colleagues. And that was very disappointing to me. So it's been, as I mentioned before, being on my own for the last five years has been incredibly fulfilling because I can do whatever I feel is best and that others would feel like I wouldn't have my clients or my patients best interests in mind at all times or that it would apply something that wouldn't, I feel, be worthwhile, I think it's just kind of odd. <laughs> so to that point, you're getting exposure early. You know what I mean? So all of that's going to help you as you graduate from, from whatever schooling you're going to, to be more open-minded to things versus feeling like, oh, okay, well, I didn't learn this in school. So this, you know, I should have learned about this in school. Otherwise, it's not valid. And that's mm-hmm. an unfortunate number of those in the medical and rehabilitation communities mindset. So yeah. I'm not bashing anything or anybody. I just, they shouldn't be bashing anybody else either. (laughs) Right. No, I immediately, if a clinician will bash, for example, I worked for a sports rehab chiropractic clinic for two and a half years before I started working for a PT company. And like, it's interesting how much they dislike each other. And it's not because they don't understand how each other practice, first of all, but they don't like each other because they step on each other's turf because they share patients. That's why. And so when a clinician disrespects another clinician's entire profession, I just, I'm turned off. And I think most patients would be too. So what I have found over the years, very, very consistently is that you should never have to worry about being busy or turf issues or competition. If you're totally invested and you go out of your way to show how invested you are in that person's care, they come find you. And they send their friends and their relatives to you. And the number of people that I've seen, I have not tried in any way to take away from any other person that they've seen. But they're like, I just don't think I'm going to go back there because I just don't. I mean, just we seem to make so much more progress. And I'm not patting myself on the back. It's just different. So, or their attitude just seemed to be like they weren't invested or whatever it was. And you should never have to worry about it as a professional if you're showing how invested you are and you're going out of your way to be, give the best quality care you can. People know when you're disconnected. Yes, They definitely. know when you're just 
counting reps and not caring about what's going on. And it becomes very, very obvious to people. So, yeah. And especially now with the online uh, situation we have going on where everybody has taken their business online, I think it's just ultra important to really be present during those sessions because first of all, they're not in front of you. So you can't really see every little detail. So just Mm -hmm. taking in as much as possible is the most important, but I agree. And I think that goes for every profession, not just ours. I do want to ask you as an ATC. So we have a little more leeway than personal trainers as regards to like assessment. I guess we have a little more background information and just from what we have learned. And I want you to talk a little bit about how you assess. And I guess I'm sure it has evolved over the years, but I guess what are you currently doing and how it works? I would slap, you know, 18 to 20 other professionals' names on my model. You know what I mean? Awesome. I'm very heavily influenced by, you know, I'll name drop here, by the Posture Restoration Institute. Again, really changed my whole thought process. Bill Hartman is an incredible influence to me. I love what he has done for helping me shape my thoughts more more concretely. You know, Pat Davidson and Zach Couples, very like-minded people. I love seeing the stuff that they put out and the things that they discuss and and having conversations and being able to lecture with them at different points. They're they're just, you know, they're just, they're fabulous people. And, you know, in a laundry list of orthopedic-based people that I follow as well, too, that I think are really, really smart professionals. And I listen to a lot of people in the performance world because they're just, you know, Greg Rose and the FMS and the SFMA stuff. I mean, I just, I love the stuff that they do and, and the influence that they've had on the fitness industry. So all little bits and pieces I've learned over the years is part of my assessment process. So when someone comes to see me the first time, I'm watching them from the get-go, how they arrange themselves, how do they orient themselves, how anxious are they, how do, how do they sit, what are they wearing, what are their clothes, you know, what are their shoes, you know, pre-mask time, I'm looking at their face, I'm looking at for distortions, I'm looking at how they smile, you know what I mean, just I'm looking at them to figure out how their body has navigated gravity over the years. I do kind of like, I, I do an intake, ask a lot of questions. My intake includes everything from how's your digestion? How's your sleep quality? Do you snore? Do you grind your teeth? Do you wear orthotics? Do you wear mouth guard? Do you wear glasses? What's your prescription? Do you have an stick? I mean, it's like, it's pretty comprehensive because all these little bits and pieces allow me to be the detective to try to figure out how, whatever, stuck they are because their body has had a difficulty over the years with being able to adapt to, to the environment. I do a stand-up kind of an SFMA screen. You know, I just kind of look at things in terms of head and neck movement. I look at general uh, body positioning. I don't want to say posture, body positioning and how they're standing. You know, I do trunk rotation. I do toe touch. I do a balance test. I do a, a body weight squat test. I look at gait. So I do a bunch of uprights things. Most of those are not decision makers, but they're just kind of allowing me to have an idea and, and get a snapshot about how they move. And then I try to see where their biases are. And then my table assessments, I literally start with grabbing their head and then figuring out what's the OA like, what's the cranial position like, how well does the cervical spine work, how's the resting position, how's the lordosis, how's the, how's the lateral flexion, CT rotation. If I'm going quick, my apologies. Oh, it's great. I'm looking at... I'm looking at arm motions and arm motions to me are indicative of what the upper quarter is doing more than just true shoulder assessment. I'll get into specific assessments of joints after I figure out what their body is like for me lying on the table. Mm-hmm. I look at rib position. I look at infrasternal angles. I look at the breathing mechanics from the front. I hit them in side lines, see how well they expand posteriorly across the upper, middle, and lower thorax down into the sacral region. I move the femurs around. Again, femoral movement, looking at flexion, seeing if there's compensatory tibial rotation, looking at IR and ER, 
looking at adduction, abduction, again, those are indicative of, of telling me about what the pelvis, the lower quarter element is doing more than, you know, do they have a label tear? Because like I, I'll joke with people and I'll say, you know, I don't really care what your diagnosis is. You know, it, I do, but I mean, I, I don't because it's not going to change what I'm going to do unless I feel like something I do would cause problems. And it wouldn't cause problems in pretty much any pathology that I'm given. So, and then I'll look at the foot and ankle and I want to kind of see what the foot and ankle looks like. And then many people will look at the wrist and forearm and just see how torqued they are or how much their body has developed some, I'll just say kind of like pathological element. Something's been a little stretched out. Something's been a little bit over tightened, whatever. Doesn't mean it's forever in my mind. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that we can change with the interventions, but that's kind of like my assessment. And then my initial discussion with them is to try and kind of say, okay, here's the top tier thing. Here's the top three things I really kind of want to discuss with you on t- for today's session. And I got a laundry list, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I got, you know, I got to kind of get to the ones that will make the most sense to them. That's not just too far off the beaten path of what they could understand. And then following the discussion, then I kind of go through some type of intervention and give them some homework to kind of work with. So if someone's coming in for say like a shoulder problem or pain in their shoulder, they don't really, haven't really identified what it is. You will still do this full body assessment. Plantar fasciitis to chronic headaches. That's awesome. I wish that was how everybody could do it, but. Yep. And I'll I'll be more regional. So if they had a shoulder, you know what I mean? Like I'll focus on the shoulder. Always, always is a strong word. I pretty much always (laughs) focus my attention on their individual problem condition thing towards the end of the session. I'm fairly certain I'm not going to be nearly as successful with any other focal work until their body's in a better starting position. So, you know, a couple of things I tell people, understand I've never lost sight of your problem. So if I see like I'm talking about your rib cage and you're here talking, you're here for your knee, I've never lost sight of your knee. Okay. So just understand that. I'll say to people, everybody's got a list. I've got a list. We've all got a list of stuff that could be better, you know? Don't worry as I go through some of yours, they're not big problems. They're all stuff that we can manage, but I just want to kind of tell you what I'm seeing so that you have a better understanding about what we want to create for an intervention because I have to manage my own list during the daytime. Again, you kind of personalize it that way and they don't feel quite so threatened with the information you're giving them. Mm-hmm. Well, this... And I'll talk about shoes and I'll talk about their glasses and I'll talk, you know, yeah. I'll talk about all kinds of stuff. So. That's so important that just to be so integrative like that. It's, and I guess that's the name of your place, right? So... The gray hair, you know, is, is indicative of been doing this a long time. <laughs> what is um, the name of your practice? Where can people find you? And then we, we have one more question, but of course. I yeah, think yeah. that that led in because I know it's integrative. <laughs> yeah. So on my hat, so it's called integrative rehab training. Awesome. So, and my little slogan is an, an integrative approach to rehab and training. I mean, that's how it's supposed to be. Looking well, to trademark you. the name, so I'm trying to grab it. <laughs> thank you for leading the way because I think you set a really, really cool example for, I mean, not just athletic trainers, but personal trainers, physical therapists, chiropractics, everyone. So thank you. Oh, um, thank you both for getting the message out. It really yeah. means a lot to me, and, and, yeah. and it's been an honor being on. We're excited. And last question. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? Doesn't have to be every day, but sometimes every day, maybe every other day, to move your brain or move your body. Oh, great question. So I will say pretty much every day when I get up and I love coffee and I'm drinking my coffee and I'm usually up around, it depends upon the day, weekdays, I'm usually up around 4.30. Weekends, I'm usually up around maybe 5.30, something like that. I am learning something. So I spend time usually on my laptop 
with all of my open tabs, Megan, I get it, all my open tabs, because I kind of like have a little list of some things that I want to do with my day. So I spend probably the first half hour, 45 minutes learning something. Uh, and part of that learning might be, I'm working on a handout that I want to give for my clients. So I'm kind of, I'm formalizing it, making sure my information is all accurate, my wording is good. Or I'm working on a, a talk, a lecture I'm giving. I'm doing one this coming week. So, you know, I'm working on my PowerPoint. Well, I don't just put stuff down. I put stuff down and I'm learning bits and pieces along the way because I look things up. Mm -hmm. So the learning element to me is really important. I feel very fortunate that my job from the body perspective is very physical. So I'm on my feet moving all day long. And my interactions with my clients, it keeps me very, very active. I demonstrate a lot. I'm constantly moving around the studio. I see people out. If it's a weekend, I'm on my bike. I'm on my paddleboard. I'm on my skate skis. I'm on my inline skates. I'm on something. So I like being active. It means a lot to me. And I love throwing weights around. So I throw weights around a couple of days a week too. So cool. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Yeah, Thank no, you. it's great. It's a lot of fun talking to you both. Thanks very much for your time. Of course. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast. Join in every week as we release new episodes. Subscribe or leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or topics to cover, please email moveyourbb at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at moveyourbb.